Welcome to another podcast episode of DIY Guitar Making. I also produce video episodes of DIY Guitar Making live in the workshop. To find both the podcasts and the videos all in one place, go to DIYGuitarMaking.com. You can even subscribe to the email list there to receive new episodes, both the videos and the podcasts, directly in your inbox as they come out. Again, that's DIYGuitarMaking.com. And with that, let's get to the show. Okay, and just like that, ladies and gentlemen, we are live here in the workshop at Eric Schaefer Guitars. I'm going to get to your questions. Uh, I do want to say that the hands-on guitar building workshops for spring are just around the corner. There's still one spot left in the April 28th to May 6th class. Um, so I just wanted to point that out to you guys. I also wanted to say that because those workshops are just around the corner, I have to put on hold all of the wonderful instruments that I was working on this winter. I'm going to pause those for now. You can actually see one of them on the wall right behind me. This is one of those parlor guitars that I was working on. This is the Wengi one, uh, number 86, guitar number 86. So that's on the wall back there. Obviously it's not complete. There's no bridge on it. It doesn't have a finish on it. There's no frets. You can't play it. But it'll look pretty on the wall for now. I've always wanted to actually have a, not a wall hanger guitar, because that always implies only ornamental value, but I wanted a guitar to put on the wall right in the busiest part of the shop here, because it's just kind of cool for me personally, when I'm working here in the shop and in between shooting videos and this and that, to just have an instrument ready to go right there on the wall that I can always just grab and mess around with a couple chords or riffs or something like that during my work day. So that's a little something for me, okay? Just treating myself. Uh, so with that said, let's go ahead and, oh, one more thing. I have three radial rosette makers left. I'm pointing this way because I'm pointing at my car, which I can see through the window. <laughs> I just loaded those up into the car so I can bring them home with me this evening. And uh, that way, when you guys buy them, myself or my wife can drive out to the post office and ship them for you. But there's only three radial rosette makers left from this batch that I did. So once those are gone, uh, it might be a while until I have the radial rosette makers available again. That's just how it is when you have a product that you produce entirely yourself in your shop here in America. Uh, rather than, say, outsourcing the whole thing to another company or to China or something like that. All right, let's go to your questions. Pulling up my trusty phone here, and here are your comments. Let's go through them. Let's find some good ones. David Harris writes, I have a question, Eric. How did luthiers cope without a fancy binding channel jig? Some of them are ridiculously complicated. Makes me want to get a Grommel and do them 
by hand. Let me first address that question by pulling out a grommel and just showing you guys what a grommel is for those who don't know. All right, so this is a grommel and I also brought an eighth of an inch chisel with me just to make the point that with these two tools right here, I can cut my entire binding and purfling scheme with just these two tools. And I've done that before just for fun, uh, to try it out, to learn something, to be able, basically to be able to talk about it with you guys. Um, because I do have the binding channel set up. It is better. It's more repeatable. It's quicker, but this is very doable. And might I even say enjoyable? The one time that I did this, I really enjoyed it. It was a little nail bitey. You know, I always felt like at any moment, especially when I was doing the chisel portion, at any moment, a little slip could uh, cause some serious damage outside of the binding and purfling area. Uh, in other words, on the, you know, visibly onto the top. And uh, it never happened. I, I did very clean work, but the whole time I felt like it could have happened, could happen at any moment. So that's the only downside I was, I would say is even with a lot of skill, it's uh, something that is going to, you're going to have to really focus and pay attention while you're doing it. And so for that reason, it kind of takes a while, but again, very enjoyable. So what a growl mill is, essentially it's a scoring tool, not that different from a marking gauge, you know, something like this, but the growl mill here has a flat side and you can take this apart and re uh, orient it and then put it back together. And then you would have this curved side, which is great for getting into the waist, right? Cause you can't reference off of the flat, uh, part of the sides in the waist area with this non curved portion. Okay. Anyway, I'm not going to totally bore you with explaining this. I mean, you can figure it out if you're really into it, you can look up, uh, LMI sells this particular one that I bought here. You can look this tool up and you can cut binding and purfling channels all by yourself. And, um, it's not too expensive to do it. It's very simple. You just have these two tools. That was not your question though. He's saying, how did, oh no, that was your question. I'm sorry. This, yeah, this is how they used to, he kind of answered it for himself because he mentioned the Grommel. This is how people used to do it, okay? Before the fancy binding tower jig setup. I will say though that I do recommend if you know you're gonna stick with guitar building, um, maybe professionally, maybe not, but at least you're going to you're going to continue doing it. And you're going to build more than just one or two guitars. Then it totally makes sense to just get the upgrade right from the beginning and get a uh, binding tower set up, okay? All right. Declan Murphy, I don't know why I said that funny. Declan Murphy writes, I tried a simple steam box for my first build last year, but couldn't get even temperature throughout the whole guitar side and it cracked. Then I tried the pipe bending method, a blowtorch and scaffold pole. 
soaking the piece in water and beforehand help soaking. Let me say that again, soaking the piece in water beforehand helps a lot. I did get some charring on the waistband. Yeah, so the moisture component of bending, whether you're doing machine bending or hand bending, is often overlooked but very critical and you will ruin a piece of sides if you ignore moisture altogether, I would say. Um, so on certain mm, very easy woods, you can get away with no moisture, but even then it makes sense just to spritz the wood. So the moisture component always comes down to one question, essentially. And that question is, am I soaking, like what he was talking about in here, or am I just lightly spritzing the wood? If the wood is figured, then you are for sure going to be lightly spritzing the wood because that figure, all of that straight grain with alternating end grain, actually starts to uh, make the wood less stable while bending rather than more. It starts to come apart. So any kind of figure on your sides, just spritz it, don't soak it. And you didn't have a question there, but um, I'm glad to hear, Declan, that you, sounds like you nailed it the second time. And uh, you did get some charring on the waistband, that's okay. You know, uh, every now and again, I get a little bit of charring. Sometimes it gets a little bit too hot, as long as it's uh, no deeper than what's than than just the absolute surface, then it's fine. Okay, and often it will be just that, and it'll just sand off when you're sanding back the binding. If it's much deeper than that, though, then of course the side is ruined. Ted Robinson writes: Sound is very subjective. As a builder, your likes and dislikes evolve over time, as does your craft. I have my guitar I built that sounds better than the Martin, but I still love its sounds. Better is not a good word for guitar sounds. Yeah, so this is a response to a previous comment that he made on, the, on a different Q&A that I used, um, where I talked about how, where, where he had mentioned that his guitar the new the guitar that he had built his first guitar sounded better than his martin and uh he's just following up on that and i agree that better is never uh maybe not never but generally is not a good descriptor you know you can say it has more bass response which generally more bass response for a steel string guitar is desirable okay but Depending on what you're trying to do, you might want something else. You want, might want more projection or more treble response even. If you're building, say, uh, an archtop guitar or a flamenco guitar, you're building with a completely different goal in mind. So better is ends, ends up being subjective in the end, okay? In fact, even a steel string player might desire a very bright kind of brash sound depending on what they're trying to do. Okay, let's see. Thank you, Eric. I like the color of the rosewood. Well, thank you. He's talking about guitar number 106, which is on the shelf for now. I'll be finishing that uh, after the classes. So sometime in June, that guitar will be done. Oh, this one's good. Jonas Kellander writes, Hi Eric, thank you for the effort 
effort of making the craft more available. One thought about naphtha, as often used to clean wood over there, as we say in Sweden, uh, so he's talking about over in America, what we refer to as laknafta, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, laknafta, in Swedish is a solvent-based product to clean brushes when painting with oil-based colors, and it smells bad. What I understand from Stumax naphtha is that it's not a petroleum-based product, so is it alcohol-based? Seems to be a substitute for a lot of nasty stuff, so to source it in Europe, what am I looking for? Take care, Jonas. Okay, Jonas, that's a great question. And I got a similar, almost identical question from someone else earlier this week. And I shot him a quick answer back because he was in the members forum and I wanted him to get a response pretty quickly. But I'd like to address this here too as well. Um, the other person asking was asking from the Netherlands. He's asking from Sweden. So I didn't realize this, but apparently there are a lot of different options when you're purchasing mineral spirits or naphtha. Two different things, by the way, and they're not the same. But in the Netherlands and in Sweden, and I'm sure in other places in Europe, there are many different options. Let's take mineral spirits, for example. There's many different types of mineral spirits. Uh, I think they often call it white spirit there, or turpentine. It's two different words. So it gets very confusing overseas when you're looking for this stuff. Let me grab my mineral spirits in naphtha here. All right, so here's what I'm going to say about this based on my limited knowledge and experience. And if there's anybody out there with some more experience with chemicals and things like that, please chime in because I'm just doing my best here. So this Jasco odorless mineral spirits is what I buy here. It's available everywhere. I mean, you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, which here in the United States, there's a Lowe's or a Home Depot in every city and often, you know, small town even, you can find a Lowe's or a Home Depot. It's just our big department store for lumber and uh, tools and different things like that. And this Sunnyside Naphtha, same thing. It's also not the same thing. I'm saying... Uh, same deal. It's also very common, easy to find. And I don't know exactly what you need to use in Europe, but I can tell you how to find it. And that's to you to locate the MSDS, which is the material safety data sheet. You can just get on your Google sticks and type in MSDS for Jasco Odorless Mineral Spirits. Okay, that full name there is important. Odorless Mineral Spirits. In fact, the odor part is even important because the aromatics that are in other types of mineral spirits are more caustic. So you, you want to find Jasco Odorless Mineral Spirits. And on that MSDS, it will give you a list of all the materials in there. What I saw when I looked up the MSDS for odorless mineral spirits, there's one ingredient, and that is hydro-treated light distillate of petroleum. Okay, so this is a petroleum pro product. 
and that one ingredient has a CAS number and that's what you're looking for, okay? I forget what CAS stands for. The C is chemical and the A and the S are something else. Regardless, you're looking for that number. Whatever that number is, you want to look up a product near you and compare that CAS to the ingre ingredient or ingredients in the Jasco mineral spirits. Okay, so that CAS number I think is going to get you there. Again, this is just me doing my best. Like I never had this problem living here. Mineral spirits, I really never even questioned it. Honestly, I've always bought the same type and I never had any issues from it. So I never had to question it. And same with the naphtha. I've never strayed from these two types of mineral spirits and naphtha. Okay, so I hope that helps. Uh, Jasco, odorless mineral spirits, MSDS, material safety data sheet, and you're looking for the CAS number. All right. Okay. David Harris writes, great video, Eric. You made me chuckle a few times with all the information and history around building. I'm certain the learning curve has been reduced. I already had the skills. I will give it my best shot with the time I have left. Thanks, Eric. Number two is in development as we speak. Mahogany slash German spruce D28. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks, David. That's a response from the previous Q&A I did. And um, glad to hear that number two is in development. B. Detchen writes, which finger plane do you use for brace carving? Okay, let me go uh, grab them to show so I like these three right here. Of course, uh, I also use a chisel. Most of the time I'm using a chisel, but when I reach for the finger plane, I almost exclusively reach for either this 25 millimeter Ibex finger plane. Uh, it's actually more technically called, Ibex calls it an arch top carving plane, okay? And that's because it has a radius sole on the bottom of the plane, which actually really helps when you're using it. This is an, a larger version of this that I have, uh, and I actually very rarely use it. So I will say, when you look up Ibex archtop carving planes, you will notice that they have three different sizes. And I find personally that 95% of the time, the only one I want is this 25 millimeter, which is the smallest one they sell. Okay, so this larger one I would say you don't need, but it's nice to have. And then lastly, and this is kind of like a, you might as well because they're so cheap, is one of these little Mujing Fang, M-U-J-I-N-G-F-A-N-G. That's the company. Mujing Fang thumb planes. They, I've seen them for anywhere from $8 to $22. So very cheap for a plane or really for any woodworking tools. If you can spend $8 to $22 on something useful, that's incredible. So this is a bit larger, of course, than this. And other critical difference is that it has a flat sole, which sometimes you want 
um, particularly when I'm putting a bevel on the uh, tops of my braces at the end of carving the tapers. Okay. 25 millimeter arch top carving plane, Mujing Fang, uh, thumb plane. Next question. Love your Q&A series, Eric. However, it should be pointed out that not all makers dome their tops, as seen with Jim Olson and Kevin Ryan, to name two. Yes, this is true. I will say, I don't mention this, by the way. I'm aware that, uh, I didn't know that Kevin Ryan did this, but I'm aware that Jim Olson doesn't dome his tops, and that very rarely some other people don't dome their tops. But that is... In every case, it's the exception that proves the rule. They're actually doing different things to make that work, and um, it's rare enough. It's just a you know, few, small handful of professional premium builders that are actually doing that intentionally. Uh, it's small enough that it only distracts from ex from my key point to bring up those iconic examples. Okay, uh, I hope that makes sense. Well, what we're talking about here is, I have answered in several Q and A's actually, um, the question about flat tops and how, and why flat tops are not truly flat, right? The flat top guitar, which that one behind me is a flat top guitar. The top is actually domed a little bit. And that's, in normal cases, it's absolutely critical that you do uh, dome the top. But yes, there are exceptions. This one's good. Riley Connors writes, I have seen other builders glue their wood binding and perfling laminations with Titebond 3 to deal with the heat and moisture during bending since it is supposed to be waterproof. That is a great tip, actually. I think I, I might give that a shot, actually. So what we're talking about here is when I make side perfling, so binding strips with just a little, in my case, a little strip of maple on the bottom. I glue that binding strip to the purfling lamination using Titebond Original. And as I've talked about previously, very rarely the I'll open up the bending machine after it's done being bent and one of those binding strips will have delaminated a little bit thus ruining that one strip. But it's rare enough that it's not not really a problem. I just throw out that one, that it might be one every like 15 or 20, maybe even 30 strips. Like it, it's a very rare event. So it, it's kind of not much of a problem, but I could see how type on three could help with this actually, because uh, so not only is it waterproof, but it also has a longer set time. So I'm not sure if the longer set time would also help with that, but it might. So just to give you a little background on Titebond, Titebond Original is what most luthiers who are using, what is that called, PVA glue? If I'm wrong about that, I think it's called PVA glue, but 
I might be describing the wrong type of glue. Most builders who are using tight bond, let's say, are using tight bond original. Um, tight bond two, if I remember correctly, is the one with is the one that's waterproof, right? And then tight bond three is not only waterproof, but it's also it also has a longer set time. So if you're doing a really big glue up and you need a lot of time to get all the clamps on there, it's good to use type on three so that you can take advantage of that longer set time. Um, so yeah, that might make sense with uh, binding and, and purfling. I'm gonna give that a shot, Riley, thank you. Okay, I think that's it. I think I'm pretty good right now. I'm gonna just, I think that's enough questions. I'm gonna end it there. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna finish prepping some parts that I was working on for the spring workshops. And then I'm gonna go home because it's late in the day already. All right, guys, I hope you learned something here. I'll see you in the next one. Bye for now. If you enjoyed this and you learned something here, Please subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform that you are enjoying this on at the moment. And if you want to really learn more, take one of my structured online courses at ericschaferguitars.com. Or you can register for a hands-on guitar building workshop here with me in Burnville, Pennsylvania. Bye for now.